Welcome, everybody, to All About Windows Phone Insight Podcast number 18. We're recording this on Friday, the 8th of November, 2013. This is Steve Litchfield filling in for you and who's packing his bag to go off hobnobbing with the tech world Illuminati in San Francisco, I believe, uh, for the first half of next week. We'll hopefully have him on the podcast uh, next week at the end. In the meantime, I've got Mr. Rafe Blanford with me. Hello, everybody. Yeah, that's right. Ewan's off on one of his uh, journeys, and he'll be, of course, using his Windows Phone device. I know he's planning to report back a, a few things, but we've got very capable Steve Litchfield in the hosting hot seat this week, Steve. Yes, I know you wanted to chat about a few of the pieces I've done on the site, and I, a Indeed. couple of them are hopefully noteworthy. The transition pieces, I did two of these. Now, one won't be of interest to all about Windows Phone interest uh, listeners because I was covering going from Symbian to Android, but equally valid is Symbian to Windows Phone. And I wanted to just take people on the same journey that I'd gone. In my case, from the Nokia 808 to the, to the Lumia 1020. Now, I've raved about the 1020 and it's Xenon Flash, etc., etc., and the 41 megapixel camera enough. Um, but suffice it to say that this was the first Windows Phone device where I felt I could really go from the 808 to another device and not lose out something in terms of the camera function. So I, my, my feature basically took people through the obvious features like the camera. Uh, multimedia, which I think now is a, a pretty darn good on Windows Phone. Things like Netflix I've really been enjoying. And of course, we've got the third-party YouTube clients. Although I have to say it's still disappointing that Microsoft and Google can't shake hands and organize something official themselves. Um, audio is pretty excellent as well. There's no FM transmitter, but I've got over that. And I've cried, cried my, um, dried my tears, as it were. Um, podcast lounge. Podcatching is a big thing I've often talked about. I've done two big features, Rafe. I'm rounding up 10 different podcatchers on Windows Phone, and there's a pretty wide variety in terms of interface and functionality, but cont- continually top of the heap keeps coming. I know one of your favorite apps again, Podcast Lounge. Now, I know several people just use this in streaming mode. They just browse to a podcast and stream it over the air. But a lot of the time I'm traveling, and I want to be able to listen to podcasts while I'm offline or in limited connectivity. So it's absolutely essential to me to catch every podcast and also not have to sit there waiting for them to download. I want them to automatically just be there. And one of the things you may be interested in, I, I met in, met with the developer of Podcast Lounge yesterday. We went over some of the reasons why it hasn't always been thoroughly um, reliable in, in it, with its background agent, as it's called a Windows phone, gathering podca- podcasts. Now, it, it turns out, and this is the Podcast Lounge is the only podcatcher which actually uses background agents, so it goes the extra mile. But the reason that extra mile doesn't always work is because of stringent constraints at Microsoft's end. So get this, for a an application to grab stuff in the background, you know, autonomously on its own, intelligently. A number of things have to be true. Um, it has to be on Wi-Fi, obviously, for the large downloads. It has to be plugged in, i.e. charging, and it, the battery also has to be at 90%. In other words, you can't just plug in a mains cable into your Windows phone and expect the background agents, i.e. in podcast lounge, to just start grabbing podcasts. You have to wait an hour or so for the battery level to rise until it's 90%. And then the OS will say, okay, well, right, you can, you can run your background agents now. So if people out there in the same boat as me have been trying Podcast Lounge, think it's a great podcatcher, but it doesn't always work reliably, then this is the absolute key. Make, make it part of your routine to have the phone on charge for a number of hours, so that is its main charge of the day, and with Wi-Fi on at the same time. And I promise you the, the background agent will work. But um, what do you think, Rafe? I think, I think Podcast Lounge is now... Uh, with this caveat and with this change in routine is now a pretty good match for things like Podcatcher on Symbian. Yes, as you said, I've been um, a, a fan of this app for a long time. I've been using it since the Windows Phone 7.5 days before it had this 
uh, automatic download. That then got added. It didn't immediately make it into the Windows Phone 8 version because of a, a bug in the Microsoft implementation. And as you described there, there are quite a specific set of circumstances. People will probably be going, well, well, why is that? Well, this is all about Microsoft trying to keep things simple and ensuring a good user experience. So part of that is going to be not about having bill shock. So don't do big downloads over a 3G connection. Now, I'm sure some people listening to this have go, but oh, I've got an unlimited data. I've got a couple <laughs> of gigs of data. Uh, the truth is that that's fine, but the vast majority of contracts are actually on more constrained data terms. Either they're maybe only on a gigabyte a, a month. And believe me, podcasting can use a lot of data, especially when you're signed up to, you know, five or six podcasts. It can quite easily be 30 megabytes a, a time. And if you're having weekly updates, you know, you can actually lose two-thirds of your download allowance just on on podcasts uh, and more to the point of course lots of people uh, will be still paying for data on a per megabyte basis to be fair that's more unusual now but that's kind of the reason there and similarly uh, downloads are actually one of the things that consumes uh, more battery or more power than anything else because there's a constant radioactivity going on and that's why you've got the constraint on the battery the idea being of course that you don't want your phone downloading stuff and then come back and find that you know it's almost out of battery so while those uh, constraints are somewhat irritating uh, to those who are used to being able to get it whenever you want it's actually about preserving the user experience and i think you can make a pretty good defense of why microsoft has done that what perhaps would be a good idea is to make it a bit more obvious so for applications that do take advantage of this particular background agent to maybe spell out what's going on and uh, yeah. for, for my particular use of passion, which is plugging the phone in overnight, um, that always ensures there's fresh podcasts downloaded automatically. So it's nothing I had to think about. I don't have to change my usage behavior, but I do appreciate that for other people, it's going to be different. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, uh, Richard, the guy developing Podcast Lounge, did say that the current dialogues in the application, which, which you can tick, yes, use battery power, and, and yes, auto-download, they just really apply to auto downloading actually in the foreground if you've got the program open <laughs> basically so that That's you, right. you might not be plugged in you want to download something there and then it, none of that applies to the background agent i think that is a bit confusing and he's promised to reword the dialogue <laughs> add a few more notes of explanation uh, i mean to be fair as you say most people using this application i think use the, the streaming option um, and certainly i can understand why that is uh, I think people who live in more maybe bandwidth-constrained circumstances, i.e. 2G signals or, let's say, not having access to uh, big data allowances, are going to be more interested in this automatic download. But it is the changing of media on the phones. I'm sure you remember, Steve. You go back a few years and, of course, the concept of side-loading several gigabytes of data uh, multimedia onto your phone was not unusual at all and actually might quite regularly be refreshed now i think there's, there's still an element of that particularly with music collections but it tends to be done once or twice when you first get the phone and of course there are exceptions to every rule here but there's so much more now is streamed between services like netflix and youtube and then on the music side of things you've got knocking music or spotify or any of those other kind of on-demand uh, or radio services and so it's interesting. I, I, in some ways, I think the way we consume multimedia on phones ha, has changed a bit. It used to be not a niche activity, but it wasn't quite so commonplace. Now, because all the streaming services have come in, it's become a lot easier to do. You don't have to worry about transcoding or anything like that. So it, I, I understand why these apps will you know, put the emphasis on streaming, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, Podcast Land is also going to Make sure it's clear if you are doing that automatic downloading of content as well. 
also covered onto the transition piece, uh, going from Symbian to Windows Phone 8, was web browsing, which is a bit of a no-brainer because if anyone's uh, also come from the Symbian world, the Symbian web was designed back in, I don't know, 1985 or something. <laughs> <laughs> 19, I would say 2004, 2005, so it's a good decade old. And uh, as a result, it's pretty slow and all the JavaScript handling is very clunky. Internet Explorer on Windows Phone, much, much faster, much, much more modern and very standards compliant. I still reckon it's not as good as Chrome on Android though, Ray. Uh, I'd agree with that. I think also it, it reflects on the philosophy difference between Android and uh, Windows Phone. Internet Explorer keeps things relatively simple. There are you know, a few settings. There are some nice tricks in there. I mean, don't forget desktop version, particularly if you're having compatibility problems with a website. But some of the things I like about Chrome, so it, it's speed. That's partly about the chipsets and the RAM available, but also being across all your desktop uh, bookmarks and things. So if you're using Chrome on the desktop, you get a pretty good seamless uh, multi-device experience and there do tend to be a, a, a few more settings but i think for 99.9 percent of uses internet explorer is more than sufficient and you know, it's improved uh, markedly since the kind of the first versions of windows phone the compliance has actually improved a little bit in some of the updates as well it does be the minor stuff um, for example i think most recently we've had some html5 updates and it, it's one of those things you only notice if you've been having problems with a website and it gets fixed and uh, now actually the problem is more that a lot of the mobile websites are, are triggered automatically based on the user agent um, that's kind of the description of the browser that gets sent to the server and sometimes they're not set up to recognize windows phone so they won't serve up the mobile version of the website whereas of course when you're using something like an android device or an iphone because there's more of them out there those are the devices that always get recognized as mobile. Uh, you, you can sometimes get around that by putting the mobile URL, URL in directly. And to be fair, it's getting better and better all the time. There's fewer sites to do that. But uh, one of the culprits here is Google, actually. They design you know, various mobile websites for their own devices and for iOS and often very good. And uh, the kind of the concept of almost an application in the browser applies because you know, they're using JavaScript and other dynamic elements, but they will then send up, serve up the very basic version to Windows Phone. But if you trick it, um, either by putting in a URL or doing some uh, tricks to change the user agent, you'll see that it works fine in Windows Phone. They're just refusing to kind of serve it up to Windows Phone. Uh, Google in the past have said that's because there's not enough Windows Phone device out there, but you can't help but feel that with the YouTube story going on, Google isn't exactly going out of its way to make things easy for Windows Phone users. Of course, they're entitled to do that, but it doesn't seem to me like they're taking very good care of their customers in that respect. Yeah, yeah, I was. I did note in a story on the site a couple of months ago that they did actually tweak the version of Google Plus that gets served up, and that, that now works fine on Windows Indeed. Phone and Internet Explorer, and that's pretty good. So it means... Although there's no dedicated Google Plus client because there's no proper API, at least uh, people on Windows Phone can take some kind of an active part in the Google Plus experience. Also covered, um, just I'll keep this brief because we want to get on to some news. Um, email and PIM. I, it's worth noting, actually, Rave, isn't it, that uh, Windows Phone now has not ac- uh, not only accessed full Microsoft Cloud in terms of um, the this, the Outlook or the Live.com contacts and calendar. You've also got access via Cardav and Calnav now to the full Google stroke Gmail contacts and calendar. So on my Windows phone, I've got access to both clouds and I can I can add entries and, and get entries synced down from either. 
it's kind of the best of both worlds, or would you say it's a compromise? I still think it's a, a compromise because if you want uh, the kind of full Google experience, Android is still your best bet for Google services. You have a kind of a dedicated Gmail application which is able to do some things that you can't do with IMAP, which is what they're using for email. And I think also that applies sometimes to some of the stuff they're doing with Cardiff and Cardiff. They kind of have their own APIs in the background. And so... It, for example, you know, in Gmail, you have the priority inbox and the sort of divisions by various categories now. You know, you can have your kind of main inbox and then social stuff coming in and newsletters, each in separate tabs. And in the Android version of the Gmail app, you get that repeated. You don't get that in Windows Phone because it's a basic IMAP implementation. That's not really down to Microsoft or Windows Phone. That's really down to um, Google making that decision. But to be fair, I think Microsoft has done everything they can. Of course, this Cardiff, Cardiff thing happened because uh, Google stopped supporting Exchange. It's actually resulted in a slightly degraded experience. So, for example, you now can't search through your Gmail archive from a, a Windows phone device without going in through the browser, whereas before that was possible because it was a standard part of Exchange. Um, uh, you know, there's a couple of things that are shame there. So it's still that, that as I say, if you're on the Google ecosystem, Android device will probably be your best bet, but it depends how heavily you are invested in it. If you're like me, and actually it tends to span across several different ecosystems, I mean, partly because you're testing things, just the way my kind of internet history has turned out. I'm using both Microsoft and Google's cloud and a few other services. Um, Actually, Windows Phone probably does work one of the best because it's sort of set up to be fairly agnostic in that sense. You just don't necessarily get the full uh, Google experience you could compare it to the iPhone as well. They've done a pretty good uh, job there as well. And there are definitely some irritations there. But of course, the difference is there that Google has supported iOS with apps because it's got a bigger install base and they feel it's worthwhile doing. I think that may change over time. And so Google at some point will presumably say, okay, the install base of Windows Phone is big enough that we probably do want to start supporting it because that's in our business interest. But uh, at this point, it hasn't got there. Um, but I, I do like the Windows Phone email system. I think it makes it very easy to use where you can link in boxes together. You get the notifications on the live tiles and everything like that. And if you're using the Exchange or the Outlook setup, it's very slick indeed. Yeah, yeah. Just moving on very quickly, the things like I loved on Symbian, things like the uh, the sleeping screen, the Nokia Glance, um, they're all coming to Windows Phone now. And on, on my 1020, I love having the AMOLED screen and the time always displayed. And at night, it goes into a nice funky red. That's really nice applications themselves i mean uh, I, i've talked many times that people don't actually need 500,000 applications they need, just need 20 or 30 really good ones that they use i th- i would say as i'm not an instagram user <laughs> i say windows phone <laughs> actually matches my application set and needs right now so the 1020 is now my main device as i speak today yeah and i think the interesting thing about sleeping screen is uh, Nokia's hardware engineers have done some clever stuff so it also works on the lcd screen based devices which i think is great um, I'm really looking forward to the Lumia Black update, which is the next software update that's sort of the Nokia bit on top of uh, Windows Phone Update 3. Uh, why? Oh, I should say that's going to arrive probably in the new year. That's going to add to sleeping screen. You'll get the same notification information that you get on the lock screen on that sleeping screen. So the kind of the four icons along the bottom with numbers indicating it. You can set them up as you like, but it's for email, Skype messages, WhatsApp messages, whatever it might be. And then the kind of the uh, pin notification one as well. So it's good to see those updates coming in. As you say, uh, there's still the app issue if you're coming from Android or iOS, but if you're coming from Symbian, it's not going to be a problem. Pretty much everything is there. There are a few exceptions to that. 
with some apps that sort of integrate low level with the system and the one that i would pick out is situations which was a kind of an ability to have really smart profiles your phone would change settings or profiles based on a, a given set of context clues so it could be location or it could be a specific bluetooth device or and other triggers and time and that sort of thing that's not possible on windows phone i mean it's from a programming point of view it's not possible yet will it be in the future maybe and so some of those lower level stuff and you don't get the same customization options um, more generally the app situation is improving all the time you still get the best experience i would say on ios and then followed by android but if you're not the sort of person that's obsessed by downloading the latest app which i think appeals to a very broad spectrum of, of users now there are definitely those who are app heavy but they're probably the ones that have already gone to uh, android or ios I think calling Windows Phone out for that uh, and saying that's a reason not to choose it at all is probably a bit misguided. I think it is a factor and I think it's a perfectly justifiable reason why you would choose an Android or iOS device over Windows Phone. Um, but I think it's just one of the factors now rather than a determining factor. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll, we'll just close out on this transition piece. Do go and look at it on the site. Just out of interest, I've also been doing some posts uh, comparing Windows Phone and Windows Phone devices to the Google Nexus 5, which is the hot new device of the week. I've um, been using that all this week, and I've just switched back to 1020, because I think the Nexus 5 and Android 4.4 is all rather just slightly unfinished. It, it, it needs updates, just as, of course, as Windows Phone did, even as Windows Phone GDR2 did a few months ago. So, uh, as ever, Rafe, all these devices are works in progress, but I think <laughs> 1020 is, is more or less getting there. Now, I did notice that as we went to press on this podcast, as we're recording it, an update to Nokia cameras just appeared, and we've no idea what's in it, but uh, one would presume um, slightly better image processing and maybe a slightly faster startup time. I think it's about two, just over two seconds now, which is good. Yeah, it's good to see those continuous updates. One, one of the things I'm curious, if you've been using a Nexus 5, you kind of had the latest Android experience. Do you feel still that there's that, it's almost a philosophical difference between the way the two platforms do things in the uh, Windows phone? it could be described as modernist or minimalist, the, the way it sort of reduces things from the screen. It's not just the Chrome, it's also about the functionality. Um, it doesn't always match on a feature-by-feature feature point, although some of it's often hidden away in menus, whereas uh, Android feels uh, perhaps more complex or it's got more features available on the screen and often has a, a busier screen. I mean, with 4.4, well, with the recent changes to Android, we've seen it move to what's often described as kind of a flatter design style, um, but do you think there's still that kind of almost that sense that uh, Android feels a little bit more geeky or it's sort of a bit more upfront about the uh, sort of the features and power um, that's available and a lot of customization options as well, whereas Windows Phone is quite prescriptive, but benefits from that by perhaps being easier to use for you know first time users or just for day to day use? I would say that uh, Google have made strides in Android in, in trying to make it simpler and easier to use in terms of presenting less, op less options on the screen. I've noticed more and more things now are being relegated to you know, things you swipe in from the side when you need them. For example, having said that, uh, Windows Phone's minimalism is because it is minimal sounds too, too critical, but because they've deliberately gone for the feature, perhaps the 90% features that 99% of people want to use. And okay, the, there, there is a slight edge case there of some real power users may have problems with some functionality in Windows Phone. But I think that Microsoft have gone designed all along for the man in the high street and perhaps a few power users on the side, whereas Android un was unapologetically from the very start. It was for geeks, for enthusiasts, for smartphone fans. And I think they're having to kind of backpedal from the other direction while Microsoft are 
developing Windows Phone and, uh, and make, uh, evolving it slightly in the other direction without losing too much of its simplicity. So uh, six I, and I one agree. and a half dozen of the other, I think. I agree. It'll be worth watching in the next few months. We'll have the big Windows Phone 8.1 or 8 next, whatever it gets called, update coming. And that may be things like the notification screen, for example. We're expecting that maybe uh, MWC next year or certainly sometime in the first quarter next year. And you're right, it does feel like they're, in a sense, moving together. Um, I tend to feel it's easier to add things um, rather than take them away just because of the way that the, the structure works. But it'll be interesting to see how much closer they, they come together. And of course, um, with the Android devices, it's a, probably a bit misleading to talk about it as one experience, given that depending on which manufacturer you go with, you'll actually end up with something quite different. Or if you're with uh, a, a Nexus device, you kind of get the Google edition um, and compare that to what you get with, say, Sense 5.5 on the HTC One or the One Max, uh, or what you get on the Galaxy S4 with TouchWiz or Sony's implementation, you can that front end can feel quite different. Of course, the core is often often similar, but I've been surprised actually. I I always expected Android to kind of get closer together. If anything, there are more differences now uh, than there used to be. Bearing in mind that all of these um, manufacturer customizations have matured a great deal, it's not like the bad old days where there were some really appalling ones. Uh, but that's perhaps a, a debate for another day. Yeah, yeah, we must move on with something topical, Rafe. And this is Indeed. the point in the podcast where I go off and make a cup of tea, so I need some time to make it. So I'm, basically, I'm going to introduce this topic, the strategy analytics, uh, the latest global sh- smartphone shipments. Maybe, maybe you can just uh, summarize for our listeners just where Windows Phone stands against the competition. So just in summary, Windows Phone shipped 10.2 million devices in Q3 of this year with a unit market share of 4.1%, which still sounds quite low, Rafe, but you reckon it's a strong strong growth and looks promising. Well, I, that's exactly the summary of what I was going to say, so I'm not sure how much I can add to that. Uh, but yes, <laughs> you know, you're right. 10 million devices, that suddenly sounds quite impressive. It's the first time that Windows Phone has done that in any quarter. Indeed, it's, I think it's also the first time that Windows Mobile never got to, to that level. But you have to set that against what Android achieved, and that was 204.4 million devices in the same period, so 20 times as many. Um, it's interesting, iOS is actually not so far away. It's 33.8 million. It's still a factor of well, three and a half. Um, but you can see how, if Microsoft can add a little bit more to those numbers, it's possible to see them getting closer to iOS by you know this time next year, for you know, sake of argument. Um, it's also notable that BlackBerry's dropped right away. It's 2.5 million. I suppose the positives for Microsoft here, despite only being 4%, market share which is is frankly it's tiny and it's why you know, still when seeing developers not target windows phone and the same applies to services they've increased markedly from last year i mean it was 3.7 million devices in uh called three last year it's 10.2 this time so you know factor of three increase almost um and the market share is similarly sort of doubled in that same time period if they can achieve that kind of growth rate again, and the sort of early signs are they, you know, they've actually established a growth rate, and it's basically about Nokia selling low-cost devices. It's not impossible to see them achieving something similar next year. And once they get to the sort of eight percent mark, or even ten percent, which is probably a bit further away, then it's actually very much a, an ecosystem that I think everyone would have to take seriously, rather than it being something that, to be fair, probably does get dismissed a little bit uh, at times at the moment. So it's. It's more, it's kind of been a positive sign uh, for Windows Phone and the sort of the positioning for what comes next because of the growth, as I say, is all in the low end of the market rather than more expensive devices, which is why uh, 
Apple, despite you know continuing to ship more devices, have actually seen a, a fall back in their market share. I, I honestly, I don't think you can read all that much into that, um, but nonetheless, it's a, a, an interesting one. I guess these Q3 numbers could also just give us a, a quick excuse to talk about Nokia, since Steve is off making his cup of tea somewhere. Uh, no, I'm here. <laughs> back on October 29th, so we're actually so ten days ago, Nokia announced their Q3 results. And they said that they'd shipped 8.8 million Lumia devices. That tells you that actually Nokia is shipping the vast majority of those uh, Windows phone devices. If you do the numbers on it, it's about 88%. Um, that's actually grown from sort of the, the, the previous year. And so it, it kind of tells you why, in one sense, Microsoft had to buy Nokia when there was a risk that Nokia might either decide to do something else or run out of money or whatever it happens to be. The rest of Nokia results... It, it's clearly in the shadow of the Microsoft takeover. Um, but the way I sort of talked about it was it, it was kind of a tale of two companies or a tale of two Nokias. And that's the kind of bit that Microsoft has bought, which is just about making money if you sort of cross your eyes a little bit. But in reality, <laughs> not really. It's it, You've got the mobile phones business. That's the Series 40 phones, the cheap phones. They're actually making money. If you look at the smartphone division, that's not making money. And that's why I sort of say you cross your eyes a bit. I mean, in terms of the actual kind of uh, profit and loss statement, Nokia's a whole made uh, 118 million. Um, that's a massive, massive improvement from the same time last year when they lost 560 million euros. So, you know, it, it's it's kind of a good news, bad news thing, I suppose. But, you know, it, no one's sort of escaping the reality that Nokia hasn't really made money from smartphones now for a couple of years um, and actually was struggling to do so um, even when it wasn't shipping Windows phone devices. The last bits of the Symbian devices uh, made money in part because the massive costs associated with Symbian R&D had been cut away and so that wasn't part of the operating expenses of the, the smartphone division. If you kind of do the numbers and you can look at, at, you have to look at gross margin and operating expenses for this, both numbers which Nokia does release on a regular basis, you can prop, you can work out that together with taking the average selling price, Nokia needs to sell about, well, it, it depends exactly how you do the cost base, but between 13 and 16 million Lumia devices would mean it would start making money. It's obviously still quite some way away from that. But if you look at the growth it's had in the last few quarters, it's basically had 20% increase in phone sales of Lumia devices from Q1 to Q2 and Q2 to 3 and so on. So for the, the first three quarters this year, if it manages to keep that rate up, which I think is probably questionable, it would get to that 50 million mark uh, in the second quarter of next year. I actually think it'll be a bit further away than that because Microsoft will probably change the cost base. They may well reduce prices. They may spend more on, on marketing. So Nokia isn't that far away from making money, but if you then look at the the cash reserves they had and everything else, that probably tells you why um, they decided to sell to Microsoft, the devices business. If you look at the other bit of Nokia, which isn't of direct interest to the podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning, that's the networks business, the stuff that makes all the cell towers and lots of other things, and also here, which is the mapping and the location business. Both of those uh, made money. The vast majority actually comes from the networks business, which uh, Nokia has kind of acquired the other half of from Siemens recently, and so it's now wholly owned by Nokia. 
Uh, but both of them are relatively positive in, in business terms, making good amounts of money and appear to be sustainably so. If you look back in the last few quarters, they've had a good track record. And so that puts Nokia, without its devices business, in a pretty strong position. And you add in the new business they're going to have from what's referred to as kind of uh, advanced technologies, which is their patent and their R&D uh, business. They're probably going to do quite well out of that. I mean, that patent stuff, I think, is particularly potentially valuable. We've just had Samsung and Nokia announce in the last week that they've renewed their patent agreement. I think there's a lot more activity to come there. And Nokia, if you read through the, the press release and official statements, they're, they're sounding pretty bullish about NSN here and advanced technologies. This is all on the assumption that, the, of course, the Microsoft deal will go through, which, as we've said before, is pretty much... Uh, a given now we expected to hear about regulatory approval probably before christmas and the shareholder meeting is, is coming up soon as well if you look at the longer term picture you can still see with the nokia device despite the fact there's good news on windows phone it is a far cry uh, still from the sort of the peak of the symbian days where they were producing an awful lot of devices at, at its peak it was about 28 29 million I think that was back in Q4 2010. It, it came down pretty rapidly after that, and there's still this issue about how rapidly would it have gone down if Stephen Elop hadn't uh, issued the famous burning platform memo and sort of cut off Symbian. Uh, it, with hindsight, I honestly think it didn't make all that much difference, uh, certainly a few million in sales over a couple of quarters, but I think the writing was on the wall. And if you look 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 back, you can see a clear decline from Q4 um, throughout 2011 that was you know before Stephen Enoch really had a chance to do anything uh, I think the drop-off in in 2012 was probably steeper than it it, it could have been if there'd been a bit more support for uh, the Symbian and of course now the Windows only starts to make up the the ground a little bit if you add in the Azure full touch devices you get to just under 15 million devices which might be termed smartphones but all of that, I still think it, it tells the history of Nokia went through an incredibly traumatic period for its smartphone business. And that's evident in what's likely to be one of the last set of publicly announced results to include the device division from Nokia. Yeah, yeah, and of course, we shouldn't forget that other manufacturers in the smartphone world are having a tough time. People only need to look as far as HTC and BlackBerry and so forth. Indeed. It's not all rosy elsewhere. I mean, if you look at the kind of traditional big phone manufacturers, Nokia and Samsung are the only ones that have really come through it. And you could say that Nokia is now going to disappear. Uh, that's, I think, a bit different because actually Nokia is still going to be around. It's going to just have a have a different name. Whereas if you think about Siemens, um, that's disappeared. Sony Ericsson's an interesting one because actually Sony's kind of come back into the business having you know, chopped it off a bit and they're actually doing pretty well. So actually I'd include Sony in the traditional one. Um, but that's going to happen as ha, has happened a similar thing that will happen to, to Nokia in terms of changing ownership and kind of actually a big change. Uh, but we'll be watching developments of interest throughout the kind of the next 12 months. Yeah, and of course, so we will have to start getting used to, to using the M word, not the N word in 2014, <laughs> but we'll come to that at some point in our own little mini transition. Um, just a couple of leaks maybe to finish the podcast, uh, Rafe. I know we've got the 1520, which is official and coming to the, to the United States, certainly, in a couple of weeks' time. But we've also had leaks of a, a 525 and a 929. Now, we don't normally comment on leaks in detail, but these have been pretty widely disseminated. I'm guessing the 525 is a slightly updated 520, and the 929 is something weird from Verizon that bears no resemblance to anything else in the known world? Well, <laughs> that's maybe a little unfair about the Lumia 929, but that uh, looks like it's going to be running on and Nokia's newer hardware platform, a bit like the 1520, but in a device that's more the 
sort of reasonable in size or uh, I guess similar to something like the 928. It's kind of a follow-on from that device and Verizon has their own timescales. I mean, they have a lot of control over the devices they they issue and so uh, I imagine Nokia's built this device for them and we may hear about this before the end of the year or it may you know be something that comes out at CES early next year. But as you say, uh, the pictures actually show a device that's sort of... Uh, a hybrid, I guess, between the 925 and the 928. So uh, keep an eye on the site. We'll obviously cover it when it's official. But uh, I think the way to think of that one is it's going to be very similar in some ways to the uh, kind of the 925, 928, but with just that updated internal hardware like the 1520 has. But we'll probably find out a bit more about that in due course. The 525, uh, we have actually, I think, mentioned it very briefly on the podcast before. It's kind of the more interesting one simply because it's kind of the obvious replacement for the 520 which has been the best-selling lumia device we really know very little about it but uh, i think what it's actually going to be is an updated 520 but without very many obvious updates but it will probably be cheaper for nokia to produce i've described in the past how nokia almost have a process of producing a device and then looking and saying well how can we cut the cost of production a little bit and sometimes that will involve you know cutting off a few bits of specification but more often than not it'll actually be to do with the way they're combined together or a manufacturing process or something like that because obviously if you can cut down the amount of time it takes to put together a device or maybe get rid of a few things that uh, in terms of construction you can save a bit of money so i think that's what the 525 is going to be about i was kind of surprised we didn't hear more about it at, at nokia world but the as you say the leaks you show a device it looks very similar to the 520 in all honesty um so it'll be interesting to see what exactly has changed and whether it's going to be given a lower cost or a lower introductory cost than the 520 was when it was announced and i guess that will be about trying to match up to the 520 which is in a lot of markets been available for under 100 pounds or under 100 dollars and so it's been, as I say, the most popular Windows Phone 8 device and remains so. It's, it remains the, the top seller. So the 525 has a lot riding on it in many ways. Yeah. Can I ask, Ray, before we disappear on this podcast, what, where's your main SIM at the moment? Which Windows Phone device is your SIM in? Well, it's a good question, that, because I've, I've been asked that a few times when people have seen me with the device that I'm using, the main one. It actually goes back... Uh, a, a few weeks when I was at Nokia World, I actually switched over the SIM from the 1020 to the 925, and that was partly because I'd run out of battery in the 1020 <laughs> and didn't, didn't have easy access to sort of switch it, it back again. And it's actually remained in the 925. And I think it's partly because it's just slightly slimmer device. Uh, I, I do really like the design of it. And I find, you know, the camera is good enough. Now, it doesn't mean I, I don't use the 1020, because I do, but I've kind of been using it as, as almost a standalone camera device. And then when I've been in the house or uh, at various places on Wi-Fi, because it, it's fine for that, and actually it worked great at Nokia World in that sense, because it was on Wi-Fi all the time and didn't really need the cellular connection and all the roaming charges that go with it. But I've come back, and the SIM has never quite made it back out of the 925 into the 1020, and I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that I'm not quite as camera-obsessed as my uh, colleague on the other side of the microphone from me. So <laughs> I, I, I'd be surprised, but I'm willing to bet the 1020 has still got your main SIM in it, Steve. Well, my main SIM has switched a bit in the last week or so because of this Nexus 5 hoo-ha, but it's now back in 1020, and I expect it will stay there for another couple of weeks at least, which is good for me. Sometimes it changes on an hourly basis. <laughs> but as ever, especially when I'm with family, especially as we get closer to Christmas, 
the importance of really good camera, the importance of Zen and Flash, the importance of the oversampling, the zoom, all those occasions, all those functions, all those events. And the only way to capture them are with, with a really decent camera phone. I was tickled by Josh Topolsky's uh, review of the Nexus 5, and he was saying, oh, no, it's got a, uh, the camera's not good enough because it can't shoot um, moving people indoors at events. And I think, well, none of these phones can, apart from the ones with Zen and Flash. You could take the highest end iPhone 5S or the HTC One you've got there, Rave, and none of them will really shoot very good moving people in low light functions. You need Zen and Flash, and that's why I stick the 808, that's why I stuck the 1020, that's why I even play with the Samsung Galaxy S4 Zoom, because they actually take the photographs on those moments, as and when they happen, because I've got the phone with me, and it's got a proper flash. End of story, really, for me. That, that sounded dangerously like a Xenon flash rant, Steve. <laughs> Was that my one for the year? <laughs> or did I always do that? No, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it, it really depends on how much priority you put on each of the, kind of the camera circumstances, if you like. Uh, I do think some phones are better than others at capturing that kind of indoor low light um, without the Xenon flash, and Nokia's been pretty good there. But you're right, if people are moving about, there's really no other way to do it apart from a Xenon flash because you will end up with blurred photos. And some people will say, oh, I, I don't really mind because it's kind of good enough when I'm, I'm catching them, I can get them to stay still. But uh, I would say it's the flexibility of that Xenon flash. It shouldn't be underestimated. And I think Steve's bet that we had in a previous podcast that it'll become more common with the changes in capacitors technology that's been sort of going on quite in the background is, is a good one. And I suspect, you know, uh, it'll get to the point where people go, oh, yes, well, actually, Xenon is kind of an important thing to have. But for the time being, there are still relatively few devices that have it. And the 1020, when you combine it with that really quite amazing uh, sensor and all the other bits and pieces, bit reframing and some of the good work yep. that Nokia's been doing with their processing algorithms, uh, I would actually say, ignoring that Xenon flash use case, which is really about indoor moving stuff, although there's a good argument to be made for fill-in flash in really bright light as well if you're taking something into the sun, but let's not ignore that one for the time being. Um, the other phones are fine, and that's why I've been quite happy with the 925, but you're quite right with the kind of seasonal stuff coming up when you are going to be maybe inside more winter time, wanting to take people in, you know, in the pub or family and friends or whatever. I wouldn't be at all surprised if I find myself hankering to use the uh, 1020 more and more. So, uh, maybe I'll report back on that one in a few weeks. It's it's interesting. We've had so much uh, all the top-end cameras are good enough. And honestly, I think that's true. And if you're not that bothered about your photos, that's that's fine. And the 1020, that extra camera bulk is probably not for you. But for those that do care, it's hard to recommend any other device apart from the 1020 at the moment. I find it amusing when people talk about the extra camera bulk. That little... Um, cylinder of metal on the back of my 1020 i caress it i think it, this is wonderful it adds it adds a touch of premium quality it adds a touch of industrial design which is otherwise a you know, fairly boring plastic plastic shape i like that 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 bulk rave uh, it's all a matter of perception isn't it i mean i i would agree with you when you think what it's doing it's a, a very small price to pay and i actually think the can, the design that's been achieved with that the way it fits on the back it feels fantastic i mean i think the 1020 is arguably one of the best designed of nokia's recent devices i really like the finish on the the kind of polycarbonate casing as well and then the way what's substantially a relatively ugly feature normally is that it feels an integral part of the design and actually if you, i really like that back face design if you turn the device over on the front it looks like anything else it's pretty boring you turn it onto the back it's immediately very distinctive and particularly in the kind of the yellow version 
that sort of becomes synonymous with the 1020 advertising campaign, really very instantly recognisable. And you know, carrying around the 1020, sitting on a train in the tube with it, more people have come up to me and asked me, is that kind of the, the super Nokia camera than any other device of sort of recent times? You know, you, you do occasionally get it when you're carrying kind of a recent, uh, be it an iPhone or an Android device, but it was happening far more than it had happened to any of the other toys. And it's partly that distinctive yellow color, but I think also that that back view with the big round thing in the middle. Um, yes, it's a lump, but it's not that big. And okay, so it's all right. But of course, some people are going to go, no, no, don't want it. It's uh, I want something as slim as possible. Um, but that's, that's kind of the spice of life. Everyone likes something a little bit different. But um, Steve, I, I think saying it's entirely a good aesthetic thing is probably stretching it a little bit too far. If you had the choice of having the 1020 without that um, hump on the back, we're still capable of doing all the same things. I suspect you'd choose to have the kind of just one smooth back. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Steve really does like having a finger rest on the back of his 1020. I think you're stretching the, the laws of physics rather too far. And I have to say, <laughs> for people who accuse us of not having enough technical content on the podcast, the use by Rafe of the term, the big round thing in the middle. I mean, that, that's that's high, high tech there, Rafe. Yeah, so, uh, I, I'm sorry, Steve. Draw, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should perhaps draw a halt to the podcast there. Thank you very much for listening. Um, we shall hopefully be back with the usual crew next week. In the meantime, it's goodbye from Rafe. Goodbye, everybody, and thank you for listening. Catch you next week. Bye for now.